0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by my partner in banter and friendship, Mr. Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan?
1: Well, my bracket is already busted, and we're only halfway through the first day of the NCAA tournament, so that's what's up, Leslie.
0: And Ichiro retired from baseball in more important news, at least to me anyway. Dan, I feel like a broken record when I say that it's been a busy week of TV news. The amount of content that we're covering across the TV landscape is just mind-boggling. This week, Disney and Fox officially closed their nearly $72 billion deal. Netflix reorganized its executive ranks with one of its top docu-series execs, Lisa Nishimura, headed to oversee indie films. Catherine Heigl is returning to broadcast. And Mindy Kaling's childhood is going to become a Netflix comedy. And that's not even considering the buzz around Apple, which on March 25th will formally unveil its video plans.
1: Phew. Okay, well that will definitely give us something to talk about on next week's podcast. Now, uh, speaking of next week's podcast and future podcasts, TV's Top Five now has a special request line, or a specialized email. Uh, if you want to email us at TV's top5 at thr.com, that's TVS. T-O-P, the number five at THR.com. You can send us your questions, comments, concerns. We would love to in the future do mailbag segments and whatnot. So we're here to talk about whatever you want us to talk about, assuming that we actually have time. Um, And also speaking of good news, our podcast this week, we've had a lot of guests from within the THR family, but this week for the very first time, we are breaking out of the THR family to bring in a special guest to chat about a show that we talked about a lot last week, one day at a time.
0: Very exciting, we're very excited. Very excited. Well, with so much going on across the TV landscape, Dan and I are here on the podcast to go beyond the top headlines of the week and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's get into it.
2: Number one.
0: Leading off this week, Disney has officially closed its $71.2 billion Fox deal. With the mega deal, Disney has expanded its global reach and an already massive content portfolio by officially acquiring Fox assets, including its film and TV studios, cable network FX, National Geographic, Indian TV giant Star India, and Fox's 30% stake in Hulu. The latter gives Disney a majority control of Hulu at 60%, with Comcast and AT&T's WarnerMedia now controlling 30 and 10 percent, respectively. So, what does this mean for the die-hard TV fans listening to this podcast? For starters, it means that all of Marvel's properties, including X-Men, are now housed under the Disney roof. It means that Disney will inherit top showrunners like Seth MacFarlane, Modern Family co-creator Steve Levitan, This Is Us mastermind Dan Fogelman, Empire boss Lee Daniels, among many others. At a time when the industry is really ramping up to compete with Netflix, when Disney is launching its own direct-to-consumer platform, Disney+. Plus, It means that shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy and Bob's Burgers and Modern Family and Empire and library content like 24 and Prison Break and Glee and my favorite, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, are now owned by the same company behind Star Wars, Marvel, and assets like Grey's Anatomy. Dan, make no mistake, this dramatically changes the TV landscape.
1: Do you have any idea of how many Mike Trout's you can get for seventy-one point three billion dollars? I want you to know the answer to that question. And a couple a, of
0: Bryce Harpers too.
1: Apparently, the answer to that question is sixteen point six, or slightly under than sixteen point six Mike Trout's. Uh, <laughs> I, I think my math is is correct on that, or else I don't know how to use a calculator. Yeah, it's kind of mind boggling. It, it really is, and I I think there's sort of this interesting gap between. The level on which everyone can appreciate that this is clearly a, a massive thing. And then the next question of when people are actually going to be able to visualize the difference. Like, do you have a sense of when our listeners will actually notice anything is different? Or,
0: <laughs> I mean, we're already starting to see it, at least on the press side, where Walt Disney's website looks different. The ABC press pit site looks vastly different and has a bunch more assets on there. Fox did an on-air promo last night, a one-time only airing of its next chapter, which coincidentally highlighted a lot of shows that are now owned by Disney. And I think, you know, we're going to start to see it with resources, too. I mean, one of the first deals that was just announced today, actually, this being Thursday, was that Drew Goddard had signed a big four-year overall deal with 20th Century Fox TV, which brings him back to the fold where he started his career on Angel and Buffy and at a studio that's now owned by Disney. Dana Walden, who used to run 20th Century Fox and now oversees that, among other assets, at Disney... Announced the deal. That was the very first one to come from the newly merged company. But in a larger sense, I think you're going to start to see more in the next couple of years. And we'll see it at least on the news side where FX is going to have a ridiculous amount of resources to really increase its programming as it looks to compete with the likes of HBO and Netflix and Apple and Amazon and Hulu and WarnerMedia and a bazillion other outlets.
1: We'll situate what... This might mean in terms of FX, or what we think this means in terms of FX, or where FX is in this whole darn thing.
0: Well, FX, yes, now owned by Disney. John Landgraf will will remain at the helm. They're basically not going to touch what he's doing because they like what he's doing, and it gives Disney something in that in a premium cable network of sorts, even though it's ad supported. That really has a lot of premium level content. That's all almost all of it critically beloved, and you can speak more to that, but. Basically, when I spoke with John Langruff at TCA this year, he hopes to to have a, a big cash infusion that will help him double the number of scripted shows on his slate from, I think it's they're at 14 right now to 28 at the most over the next three to five years. And on top of that, he wants to aggressively build an FX unscripted slate with another eight to 12 shows in that space. And they're really making a big launch with that this year with with The Weekly, which is a news magazine produced in partnership with The New York Times.
1: It's going to be interesting to see. And I don't think we know currently what any of it's going to mean in the same way that when we were talking about HBO last week or the week before. It's one thing to say all of the indicators are that what the HBO brand is probably is going to change unavoidably i wonder about fx like what you know what is the amount for example of unscripted programming that you could suddenly put on fx and it would cease to feel quite like fx anymore i i don't know what the answer but is But i to think that. that's
0: where you have to trust an exec like like john landgraf who as we all always joke is known as the mayor of television in around town you have to trust that he is the barometer of taste for that network and he's not going to pick up a show like the masked singer to that doesn't make sense for what he's doing and the same you know i've i've defended hbo on this podcast before where i think you you trust the executive regime their mandate is to do more it's not to change what they're doing it's to do more of what's made them a success in the first place. And I think when you give more resources to networks like HBO and FX, you're going to start to see them maybe start to win some of these big packages that are being taken out around town where, I mean, look, Apple ponied up to, to get Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon in the morning show drama. That was a two season, 20 episode straight to series order. It was their first scripted buy. And we'll talk about Apple later. but. That was a package that went around and was a massive bidding war. I mean, Jennifer Anderson's returning to TV for the first time since Friends starring opposite Reese Witherspoon. You mean to tell me FX wouldn't want that on their network or HBO wouldn't want that or Netflix would even want that? When you give more resources to these outlets, I think you're going to see them really start to compete for these big, big top projects.
1: I wonder because you, but you hear so often about kind of the I don't know, the college basketball or college football coaches who do a spectacular job at mid-majors because they're tremendously talented at kind of taking players, building them up over four years and making them into cohesive units. And then if they go and they sign a big deal at a, you know, a power conference team, suddenly they're recruiting the five-star people who go pro after two years and suddenly they aren't doing the same thing anymore. Or like the baseball team that has a lower payroll and can play sort of money ball with their money. And I do wonder if it might change how John Landgraf looks at the world, but we don't have a clue on that. So it's completely speculation. I
0: I don't think he's going to buy stuff that doesn't make sense for them. And if the bidding gets above and beyond for a big project, I I don't think he's going to be unwilling to pass. I mean, there was a show, I can't remember, I think it was David O. Russell was shopping something and it was with no script, just to hear the pitch, it was something like 20 million on the table just to have him come to the office and share the pitch. Landgraf said, no, pass. I mean, 20 million just to hear. I mean, with no script. I mean, that's insane. But at a time when (laughs) you need top content and everyone's competing for the big for big name producers and big IP and big swing projects because everyone wants to have the next big mega hit like Game of Thrones. It still has to make sense.
1: We all saw the video, though, of David O. Russell and Lily Tomlin from back on iHeart Huckabees. I mean, he's a he's a kind of crazy, entertaining guy. Maybe it is worth $20 million just to be in a room with him. I wouldn't necessarily think so. So
0: you can get if you can get Mike Trout to pay for that. Maybe I'll I'll hear. I'll hear he
1: does appear that. to have the money. Um, talk a bit about sort of how this situates Disney going against the Netflix behemoth, which we keep talking about all the time as being this kind of gigantic thing playing by its own rules. Disney's now rather gigantic, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it's rather massive now, yes. As if, it, as if it was not before. I mean, what this does is when you look at at the roster of producers, let's just, just look at it from that point of view. So Shonda Rhimes, Kenya Barris, both depart for Netflix. So that's ABC Studios' top drama and comedy showrunners. And what this does in buying Fox assets like 20th Century Fox, like their TV studio, is it brings all of those big name producers the same ones that Netflix and ABC and Warner Brothers and Universal Television have been bidding for like crazy in the past couple of months ignited after Shonda after Netflix paid Shonda 100 million bucks all of these studios are competing for the same talent well Disney just got Dan Fogelman and Lee Daniels and Steve Levitan and Seth MacFarlane and a bazillion other producers in addition to that it gets all of this IP. And this is Disney we're talking about. They don't lack for a a roster of IP. They have, of of (laughs) course, all this crazy great, great Disney stuff. They have all of Star Wars. They have Pixar. They have Marvel. They have all of this stuff under one roof. And now they've got quadruple the number of top producers. So if you're looking at how does ABC Studios or how does Disney replace losing someone like Shonda and losing someone like Kenya, this is how. This is how you better position a studio to compete in the streaming era.
1: I like that I did math on uh, Mike But You give me bazillion. Anyway.
0: It was my understanding (laughs) there was to be no math.
1: No, it is is utterly terrifying the potential size of what it is that Disney has suddenly become, as opposed to what it already was when it was already ridiculous. So I, I think... Look, we've been talking about this now for months, and now it's just become official. So we still don't know what the world is suddenly going to look like six months from now. So I assume we're going to talk about this again.
0: It is definitely a story that we will be monitoring here on TV's Top 5 and on THR.com. Shameless plug. Dan, that feels like a good transition. Next up this week, let's check in on the efforts to save one day at a time. Number two. It's been a week since Netflix canceled the beloved Latino-themed reboot from Norman Lear, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, and Mike Royce. As of this recording, producer Sony TV has yet to find a new home amid legions of fans attempting to help save the comedy. That said, a new report from former THR TV editor Nellie Andriva over at Deadline.com detailed some of the problems that may be hindering the indie studio's efforts to set up the show elsewhere. And reports that Netflix deals contain an exclusivity clause that would prohibit their rejected series from gaining a new home on any other streaming platform anywhere from two to three years. That's a new narrative, and that's opposite of what many of the Save Our Show's campaigns that have resulted in Netflix coming into the rescue and reviving things like AMC's The Killing or A&E's Longmire or, or Lucifer, which Fox canceled, and of course, our favorite former ABC drama, Designated Survivor, which... Go ahead, Dan.
1: So, uh, how many uh, showrunners has it's that on one its had? Big
0: showrunner <laughs> heading into its third season and first on Netflix.
1: Yeah, that the revelation of that clause is so funny because it's so completely Netflix saying, "Look, we're playing our rules, but you can't play by our rules because only we get to play by our rules," and so all of these. It, you know, you you mentioned only the established shows that Netflix has picked up that were canceled on other the, entities. Yeah. So that's before you get to pilots like Insatiable from The CW or All About the Washingtons from ABC. I feel like there was at least one other that I'm blanking oh, I'm sure. on. But yeah, so this is something that, that Netflix has been doing forever they're you know part of their business model is that they're scavengers i mean there's so many other different parts of the business model exactly it's it's we're going to take it from wherever we get it but you can't take it from us which is
0: and i mean you or you can (laughs) but you have to wait two or three years which is almost impossible a would require new talent deals to keep the cast under lock and key for a certain window it would require making sure their schedules are clear from two to three years. It would require whatever new outlet deci- were to pick it up, if it were a streamer anyway, to spend a crazy amount of money remarketing the show. I mean, you want to have some sort of regularity. And when a show is off the air, especially one that doesn't have a, an allegedly large audience, that costs a lot of money to remarket. It's not like it's Game of Thrones and you can afford to be off the air for over a year.
1: Well, you all you need to do is look at something like when... Breast Development came back the first time on Netflix and because it had been so long and because there were contracts that were kind of free floating, they couldn't actually get everyone together to make the season. So it became this weird disjointed thing where basically they shot with whoever was available because everyone else was doing their own things at their own paces. And it was the
0: same with Wet Hot American Summer too.
1: Exactly, which ended up producing Strange Recasting and other... Narrative choices that maybe they would not have made, some of which worked out entertainingly and amusingly, others of which did not. But yeah, this this is a sort of a funny thing, funny thing to have only sort of discovered about now, which goes to show how when Netflix wants to keep things secret, Netflix does a rather spectacular job of keeping things secret. But apparently you, you can't keep things from Nellie.
0: Yeah, it was a great report. I definitely wish I had reported that. <laughs> Well, let's get into the latest of what's going on with the efforts to save the show, and we are joined by a very special guest this week, One Day at a Time executive producer Mike Royce.
1: So for those listeners who do not know, uh, Mike's credits include Men of a Certain Age, Everybody Loves Raymond, The Late Lamented Wonderful Enlisted, and again, One Day at a Time. So we were basically recording this podcast last week when the news broke uh, one week later, Mike, how how are you sort of feeling about where you are in, in this conversation?
2: Well, I mean, there seems like there's interest and we're I mean, listen, we I, I you know, I loved working at Netflix. We made three glorious seasons of the show, creatively speaking, so much due to them and how they supported it and everything. And we just want to keep making the show. So we're you know, I we're just waiting. I think there's a lot of stuff going on with there's pilot season. There's a merger that's happening. There's, I think, reasons why, you know, um, getting the exact level of interest is not coming, you know, like it super quickly. But we're on we're hot on the trail as far as I know.
0: So what's the latest that you're hearing from Sony? I mean, has the phone been ringing off the hook? We hope.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I obviously can't really talk about details, but, uh, you know, the phone has been ringing is what I can say.
1: <laughs> so one of the one of the amusing developments of the past week has been that apparently Lin-Manuel Miranda has become this kind of caped crusader diving in to save all of his favorite TV shows. Did you anticipate that that was going to happen when this news came down? Or have you been surprised by how rather aggressively he has been going? going to
2: bat for you guys? I mean, I'm not surprised because of who he is. I am surprised because he's so freaking busy. I've said to people, you know, I mean, and we've we've I mean, he's supported the show occasionally in the past, but and, and, you know, has talked to Rita and, and Gloria. But, you know, what he did in the level of like commitments that he's had towards it. He had dinner with Gloria and Melissa Romero. And, you know, they talked about some stuff and obviously all the tweets and everything. I keep saying to people, I could not do what he does on. So just on social media without many like assistance. then factor in that he has like 80 jobs. I just don't know how he does it. I really don't. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to get my act together to like put a couple of tweets together and you know keep some keep the fires burning uh, myself and then I'm doing the pilot and I mean it's crazy I don't know he's it's just his level of activity is uh, undeniable
0: in terms of efforts to save the show how much do you know about the this clause in Netflix contracts that limit a show from an outside studio moving to another streaming platform. With a, a window to wait between two and three years, is that something that you are aware of? And if so, how much is that really impacting the show finding a new home?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a secret that you know they don't want to give it to they. They, I'm sure they negotiate different things with different shows. But from what I understand, for our show, it's it's yes. I'm not sure if it's a two or three year hold, but for streaming services, whereas the hold is less, I think it's a few months to go to a broadcast network which I understand they're a streamer and they um, would rather, you know, they consider other streamers more of a competitor than I guess networks or, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, when they struck the deal three years ago, maybe the landscape was one thing then and it might be a different thing now. So I don't know, they might be striking different deals now. But that, yeah, I mean, what you say is correct as far as I know that it's, it's we would need them to hopefully relax their hold. I don't, actually have all the details but i think that's right i mean you know i understand their side of the story from a business perspective and i would just hope that we can at least talk about a way to i think there's this particular show serves such an underrepresented group and is you know i i'm only saying this because i'm i'm trying to save it you know we've had good reviews and we're it's generally looked at as a pretty good uh content product <laughs> <laughs> so that i think but more importantly you know the, the just latinx people do not have have hardly any voice on on any kind of television right now and i'm talking about american you know latino americans as opposed to latin america in, a, in a general and they are also you know 60 million of them in the united states if if i have my facts right and there's hardly any shows that feature them. I mean, really barely. I mean, Jane the Virgin's ending. And it just seems like they're also, politically speaking, There's they're, they're being the most demonized and they need to have a voice. You know, a show that just, I, I hate to use this word, but like normalizes, that just shows a group of people that live next door to you, who you could know and are your friends and live all around you and are Americans <laughs> and our uh, working class. And so, yeah, I just think in our particular case, I'm not, it's obviously self-serving for me to say this, but at the same time, I do think we, if, if there's an exception that they can possibly make to try and keep this show going and living in some way that maybe helps Netflix make a little money as well. And I, I just feel like there might be something to talk about there.
1: Well, it's interesting because, the you know, a lot of the things you mentioned about the underrepresented audience that this show did represent, Netflix even acknowledged themselves in the social media posts that came immediately after the cancellation, which is not something that Netflix ever does and really that any networks do. Had they told you in advance that they were actually going to put out kind of that sort of explanation? And what was your reaction to the way that they kind of went public with their explanation, excuse, whatever you want to call
0: it. And I think those tweets were deleted, right? I mean, I looked for them yesterday. I couldn't find them. Huh. So I, I'm not I sure. Don't, I don't
2: think it. they were deleted. If I, I mean, at least I haven't looked lately, but I don't. If they were deleted, they were deleted very recently, and that meant they were up for a long time. But I don't know, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Had but you known that was coming and what was your reaction to that? And I guess sort of to the reactions people had, because I was – I was surprised that in the first five minutes, the reactions were okay. Well, it's nice that they're making the effort to show that they understand, and then it evolved beyond that very quickly into people being a little bit more disgruntled. I felt like,
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I did not know they were going to do that. They said very nice things in the tweets about the show and about Gloria and me and Norman. I think they didn't. Yeah, I think they they made it a little worse it's just t- it's a tough thing to say that you sort of are on I mean they're breaking up with us you know and then they're kind of saying it's not you it's me and they're saying a lot of things that there's just it's just not the time to hear it even uh, from a from a timing standpoint I think they they may have they just miscalculated I do think they to give them credit you know that I think they felt very bad about what they're doing and they're trying to communicate that but you know, at the same time, it's a little tough to say we really care about all these things that we care about while at the same time we're canceling this thing that does all those things. So th- that's where they got in trouble, I think.
0: When it comes to the timeline of, of things, when do you guys need to know by? I mean, I would assume that there's options on the cast and obviously you have other things going on. And, you know, Gloria's got a couple yes. of things in the fire, right?
2: I don't. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't have the exact details of when. I mean, the cast holders, at least... I think a, a few more months maybe, but, you know, I mean, nobody wants to tie people up unnecessarily. I think we need to, I, I just think we need to find out the real on this as soon as possible. And like I say, I think that right now that we're just having uh there's indications and it's just a, it's a little bit of a, there's, it's pilot season and people want to see how their pilots turn out. And also there's a merger happening that is, you know, the decision-making maybe uh tough to come by in terms of who's in charge of what that's me talking. I, I don't, that's just yeah. my own speculation. That's not something somebody told me.
0: So, I mean, have you heard, is it, it sounds like AB, maybe ABC, CBS, what can you say about the nature of the, of the calls that you're getting? Are they broadcast specific I, cable? TBS seems like definitely. A
2: good yeah, there's networks. And I just, I don't want to get into specifics other than people are interested and more than one, you know, entity is, is expressed some kind of interest
1: sort of put a different way what do you think would be the right home for this
2: oh yeah (laughs) yeah but this is like come on you can't yeah you know if if you want to play for the lakers you don't say like i want to play for the lakers and they trade you to the knicks and everybody hates you you know (laughs) (laughs) how about Um, about in a general more
1: nebulous sense though
2: (laughs) i'm gonna personally speaking i have the same policy for this show that i had when i was dating which is i like Networks that like me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And networks that like Sony, (laughs) which is harder to come by in this uh, era of ownership.
2: Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course. But it's also, listen, Sony is tenacious. They are known for, part of the reason I, I came over here to work is because they're very known for fighting for their shows, like Community and Timeless, and they try more than any other place to make it work. They get very creative. I mean, the community thing was creative every single year.
0: Yeah, and, that was, and, and that was Zach I and Jamie, like, who are now running Apple.
2: Yeah, exactly. Those 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 guys are, but there's, you know, there's a lot of people still here who, who uh, have adopted the culture. So, I mean, that's certainly what um, is still happening in terms of their approach. So... I have a lot of faith in their attitude and, you know, when this happened, they immediately came to us and like, we will find a place, we need to find a place, this show needs to keep living. You know, there was not even a hint of like, I can just, I can say in the past, when you try to sort of give that, that, you know, hey, let's take it somewhere else to the people but uh, at the studio, they're sometimes like, oh, you know, I mean, yes, of course, we'll try. And then they don't really try. This was completely the opposite. It's like, well, you know, you have no choice. We're totally going <laughs> to we're you this someplace whether you like it or not.
0: Wrapping up, I just have one last question. You know, Netflix said in their statements that it just didn't deliver the, that one day at a time didn't deliver the viewership that it was looking for. And of course, that viewership, which we've talked about in this podcast before, is a complete and total mystery to pretty much everyone in town. What have they told you numbers wise? Have they shared any of that that data with you?
2: Yes and no. We don't have specifics. They told us that our show went up. Our numbers went up every season. And I think from two to three was the biggest jump. And at the same time, it wasn't getting high enough. You know, it's I, I listen. I'm giving them credit for telling us that because obviously it sounds infuriating if like we go up every season, why just keep us, we're going in the right direction. But I, I, you know, it's like everybody else. I don't know the specifics. I mean, I am pretty sure that the, you know, like millions of viewers that, you know, uh, I've seen Nielsen data that, that backs up what that says. And that data is only internet connected TVs. So it doesn't even count phones and tablets and laptops. Yeah, it corroborates that particular, you know, it doesn't, it's not we don't have all the numbers, but it, it, the upward trajectory is, you know, definitely big.
1: Well, you, you know that I'm a fan and you know that Leslie's rooting for you as far as she can within journalistic responsibility. Uh, and we, we thank you so much for chatting
2: <laughs> with us today, Mike. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: And good luck this pilot season. Mike Royce is working on The Us Project, a hybrid comedy from Sony and CBS, For the network about how an unlikely couple become an an unlikely family, as told through interviews and vignettes spanning 10 years. And it's with Parker Young, who we know and love from Enlisted.
1: Number three. On to our next topic, Leslie just mentioned one of the many, 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 many pilots currently in various different stages of production at the various broadcast networks. And of course, if you follow us on THR, you know that Leslie is almost permanently in the weeds the entire spring on various different pilots. We last talked about pilot season basically when networks had ordered scripts. As of now, pilots have been mostly cast. They're mostly either about to start production or in production. So I guess we're going to look at things kind of at the midway, and then perhaps in another month, we'll check back in as we approach the upfront season. So Leslie, what do you want to say in terms of sort of big picture observations you're able to make about the landscape?
0: Well, the one thing that I have really noticed this year, and I've continued to notice in the last couple, but... The general interest in broadcast pilots is just lower and lower every season. You know, I look at things from a traffic perspective. I look at engagement on Twitter and what people are excited about and what people are talking about. And when I talk to agents, you know, unless they have a dog in the fight, we're not talking about broadcast pilots. And, you know, look, there's 60 some odd pilots. It's down, I think, 10 year over year as the networks continue to get more specific and more. I don't know. They try to watch what they're spending and maybe do it a little bit more financially responsibly. But no one's talking about pilots because maybe 20% of these will get picked up to series. Of those, what, like 5% will make it to a second season. Broadcast pilot season is basically an effort in failure. And from a creative point of view, one of the big takeaways that we have been hearing from the agency side has been a real lack of A-list stars who are even willing to do a broadcast pilot. Of course, there are a handful this season who are cashing in. Edie Falco will play the first female LAPD chief for CBS. Katherine Heigl is returning to broadcast and CBS and is going to do comedy for the first time with a multi-camera comedy called Our House. Andy Garcia is going to play Kenan Thompson's father-in-law on a comedy for NBC. And look, those names are getting big money. You know, we used to talk a couple of years ago when James Spader signed on for a pilot. And he was like, oh, he's getting 200000 an episode. Oh, my God, That's huge. That's less than average for some of these big names this season.
1: Well, I just find this so odd and to be such a change because one of the favorite things that you do basically every year, and that others following this do each year is the sort of who are the big names who are getting all the offers. And for a number of years, was like, ooh, which big movie star is finally ready to make the jump to TV? And you just listed three names. And Edie Falco, God lover, is brilliant. I mean, and, she's fantastic. Yeah. But she, multiple she was,
0: Emmy winner. Yeah,
1: but, Jackie was great. But I don't know that she's like a movie star coming down to TV. She's a TV star a TV who TV people talk. want to do TV. Catherine Heigel I don't understand how we're even pretending she's a TV star at this point. And this is no offense to Katherine Heigl, who was great on Grey's Anatomy and in a moment was a big star. But she's had multiple failures in a row that didn't make it through a half a season. I, you know,
0: doubt at CBS, I think, was canceled after one and state State of of, state of affairs affairs. at NBC. I was
1: not going to be able to give you what was a state of. So when these are the big names, I mean, Andy Garcia. Sure. And and, look, the
0: broadcast, he's (laughs) been you talk about the pilot season hot list he's been on that list for the last two or three pilot seasons and has been reluctant to do anything. I mean, look, that NBC Keenan Thompson comedy is produced by Lauren Michaels. If it goes to series, which given the commitment that they have, the penalty against it, the fact that it's Keenan, fresh off an Emmy win, and now you've got Andy Garcia, that seems like a slam dunk to go. But I mean, he's been one of the top names that the networks have been pursuing for the last couple years. And He finally relented. And in
1: 1993, that would have been really, truly massive. So, okay, give me some of the other big names that people were trying to snag who count as the big gets of this pilot season.
0: Well, Glee and Shadowhunters grad Harry Shum fielded multiple offers this season ahead of what is expected to be his leading role in the Crazy Rich Asians sequel. He's going to star in ABC's Heart of Life, which is based on the John Mayer song. I'm not familiar with that. I don't really listen to John Mayer, but it was written on spec. It's produced by Melvin Maher, who's behind the Jumanji movies. It's put together a decent cast. And look, Harry reunites with Carrie Burke over at ABC. And Burke was the executive on Freeform's Shadowhunters. A lot of networks pursued him. Speaking of ABC, Nicholas Pinnock, who was heavily courted by ABC to star in its drama from 50 Cent, former How I Met Your Mother co-star Kobe Smulders, signed on to play an army vet turned PI in an ABC drama based on an Oni Press graphic novel called Stumptown. And once upon a time in house grad Jennifer Morrison is returning to prime time as a surgeon back in the medical world on a show at CBS called Under the Bridge. I mean, these are proven TV stars. Outside of Harry, he's going to be a movie star in the next couple of years.
1: Well, OK, so last week at THR, I wrote about the 10th anniversary of Kings and kind of how little, quote unquote, ambition there is on network slates. And I was talking specifically about dramas, but talking drama and comedy, do any of these sound like? Big ideas.
0: I mean, it really is based on your own taste. For me, I'm always going to be linked with Glee. That was a show that I covered early in my career that helped me get my bearings as a TV reporter. I'm really interested in NBC's musical dramedy. It's called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It's about a socially awkward girl played by Jane Levy who is suddenly able to hear the thoughts of the people around her, but in song form and see them in musical numbers that they perform just for her. And the cast is great. It's Skylar Austin, Glee and Glee project grad Alex Newell, Mary Steenburgen, Peter Gallagher. I mean, the concept and the cast is great.
1: Look, if they can get Peter Gallagher singing, and I love Jane Levy, I can be on board for that. Give me another big idea.
0: Fox's Prodigal Son, a family drama and procedural about the son of a notorious serial killer who helps the NYPD solve crimes while balancing his crazy family. Um, it's a, Look, it's a procedural, <laughs> but it's on New Fox. Tom Payne replaced Finn Jones in one of the early pilot season recastings, and they got Michael Sheen to star. And one of my favorite actresses, Bellamy Young, Scandal Gret.
1: Yeah, Finn Jones was in that one for about one day, right?
0: One day. They did a table read, and then he was gone.
1: Wow. And
0: that's not uncommon, this kind of season. There's it's... no slam against Finn Jones. It's just, look, these are 60-some-odd pilots, all casting and looking for directors and producers and staffing up and competing with cable networks and streaming platforms, which are offering straight-to-series orders for these guys. And it's all happening at the same time. So sometimes you get an offer and you think you're landing a big actor because you don't want him to get a test deal for another network. You don't want to lose him because the competition for talent is so fierce right now. And look, it's a great time to be an actor. Like the broadcast networks, you look at my pilot grid, and 90%, I would say, of the casts of these shows are newcomers. It's a great time if you're an actor because there's so much content that networks need actors. Streamers need actors. You know, it's, it's crazy. But recastings are part of the business where a lot of times these actors don't test because you want to get someone who's a decent name and you've got seven other people calling them at the same time for other projects. Sometimes the chemistry just doesn't work. If you can see it at the table read, that beats the hell out of learning about it when you're in production
1: well i strongly recommend that everybody check out leslie's pilot grid on thr.com it is indispensable and we will doubtlessly talk much 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 more about this as we get right now
0: a lot of the pilots are already in production you'll hear probably a couple more recastings in the next couple of months and then as we head toward the upfronts in may we'll do you know if i have time we'll probably do the 10 most likely to go and look if batwoman doesn't go that's going to be a big shocker i heard pedowitz is already loving every minute of it that he's seeing of the cuts but yeah we'll see that takes us to our fourth topic this week let's talk apple dan
1: sure let's leslie number four
0: the iphone maker has already spent upwards of one billion dollars on originals but the tech giant has not yet revealed just how any of its content will be available That will change on March 25th when Apple CEO Tim Cook and presumably video head Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich will likely unveil all the details of what they've spent the past two years working on. It's expected to be a star-studded presentation from Apple's Cupertino headquarters. Dan, are you going to be watching the live stream on this one?
1: (laughs) Mother could be watching the live stream or trying to make sense of whatever press releases they put out accompanying it. You know, again, we will talk extensively about this next week. This is kind of just a teaser segment because it's what's in the water. Getting some of these answers, though, is going to be very illuminating because we've been talking about Apple's push into original programming for. Three plus years. And we've been talking about things going back to whatever that mysterious Dr. Dre series is that may or may not ever see the light of day.
0: Never going to see the light of day.
1: Which remains vaguely remarkable to me. So. The number of things that we don't know, ranging from how the heck am I going to watch these things to how much is it going to cost me to watch these things to when are any of these things going to premiere to how many of these things are going to premiere
0: to what other (laughs) streaming services are you going to be able to get as you buy into whatever Apple's presumably TV and film package will entail. I mean, there's a lot of variables that they have to answer
1: and a lot of variables that, let's be real, have the potential to flip just about everything upside down, if it looks enticing and looks good, you know, I believe the word that people like to use is disruptors. And when Apple decides that they want to do something, Apple has the capacity to change the game 100%. And so it's interesting, and it's going to be interesting to see if this is going to be the thing that does that, or if they're going to give us answers, and we're still not going to be satisfied, and we're still going to be confused about every little bit of this. So I think a lot is really hinging on the presentation next week and how well they answer these questions that people have and how well they make it clear to people who aren't us and who aren't the intelligent listeners of our podcast, who of course are excited about things because we keep talking about Apple TV. But there are millions of people out there who don't listen to this podcast, apparently. And if you meet any of them, tell them they should. So it's the question of what they're going to be able to do that's going to take the visibility of this beyond us and our listeners to everybody.
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, they've got an incredible roster of content. But the joke I always make is, does the dude sitting across the street at Starbucks have any awareness that Apple is going to be making original shows with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston or an animated show from the creator of Bob's Burgers or a Chris Evan? Eight-episode limited series, or a modern-day version of Emily Dickinson starring Haley Steinfeld, or to be, to be fair, a big the... take on Isaac on Foundation, which is one of the biggest <laughs> books that you can do. It's a really broad, sweeping sci-fi drama from David S. Goyer. I mean, and then there's multiple shows from J.J. Abrams, including one with Sarah Bareilles, and they have a lot of content. To be fair,
1: we are across the street from the SAG-AFTRA headquarters, and the Starbucks is adjacent to it. So I'm guessing the guy at that particular Starbucks has a pretty good idea, and he's probably auditioned for several of those. But but the question of whether the guy at the Starbucks in Omaha, Portland, New Orleans, take your pick of a location that's a perfectly legitimate city but still is not... Hollywood.
0: Or the 700 people who are standing in line for the Genius Bar at Apple. If while they're waiting and they see projected on the screen, here's Jennifer Aniston starring in a morning show drama, and here's a scene of it. And oh, by the way, for X amount of dollars, subscribe and you can get this and 17 other shows. And by the way, we're also going to have content from Oprah Winfrey. They have a lot of work ahead of them and a lot to accomplish in what's expected to be about a 90-minute presentation on Monday. Oh, my God.
1: I had not realized that.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of work to do, Dan.
1: There really is, but I appreciate you warning me that that was going to be the case. So get
0: get your Safari browsers up and running on Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific. We'll all be watching. It's definitely one of the biggest stories and moments of, of the TV calendar, at least so far, and we're only in March.
1: Well, we will definitely cover the snot out of that. Next week on TV's Top 5.
0: And we will have full coverage from Cupertino on next week's podcast, as well as on THR.com. As always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner segment.
2: Number five.
0: This week, the OA returns to Netflix. AMC launches the final season of Into the Badlands. The CW begins to say farewell to Jane the Virgin. FX debuts its TV take on cult vampire comedy, What We Do in the Shadows, and NBC's newest Mike Sure produced comedy, Abby's, debuts. Dan, what's worth watching this week?
1: Well, I'm still working on my review of the OA. It'll probably be up by the time this podcast goes up. It is not a show that I wholly embrace. On the other hand, I do have to say that the fourth and fifth episodes of the eight episode season contain two of the strangest things I've ever seen on a TV show before. And given that The OA is a show that kind of thrives in bizarre, out-there, out-of-the-box thinking, uh, that I guess is it doing what it is trying to do. Um, I find a lot of it excruciating, a lot of it laughable, but every once in a while they do things that are... Really, kind of revolutionary, maybe not necessarily. Give
0: us a sample. By the time this podcast, oh is no, so no, people no! Watch-
1: I am seriously. It is stuff that is too crazy to explain. It is not as offensive as the way that the first season ended. I am still angry about that. But people will know when they get to the fourth and fifth episodes of the OA, when suddenly little parts of their brains explode, what was causing my head to explode. So I'm not really recommending that because if you were in on the first season of the OA, you're bound to be excited for the second season. And if you weren't, it's still the same show it was last season. So it's not going to suddenly become your particular cup of tea. It is coming. One thing that probably people will enjoy more and more people will probably enjoy, but it will still probably be a cult item is what we do in the shadows. I don't know that you need to see the movie, but the movie is fantastic, and the movie kind of sets what the tone is the FX version is going for. It's an all-new set of characters and a new situation. It's moved the action over to a house of vampires being recorded by a documentary crew in Staten Island as opposed to uh, New Zealand, and so totally different tone in a general sense. I had reservations about the couple episodes I watched, but when I laughed, I laughed hard, and it seems as if I'm kind of on the less amused spectrum of critics. It seems like a lot of people seem to like it more than I do. And so that's fine. I, I do still recommend it. And especially if you dig the movie, it will make you laugh. Jane the Virgin, great show, and I'm looking forward to watching Abby's, though I've heard it described by reputable people as uh, likable but maybe not funny, but I can be down with likable and maybe not funny from Mike Schur and starring Natalie Morales. So, And,
0: and that's a multi-camera that is entirely filmed outdoors in front of a live studio audience.
1: Yes, filmed basically in a backyard, so that could be... Interesting. So Format yeah,
0: itself, to me, makes it worth checking out.
1: There, there are definitely things to check out. You should still be checking out The Act from Hulu, which premiered on Wednesday, uh, has a great performance by Joey King and a great performance by Patricia Arquette. There is still plenty of TV that you can be watching. So the thing I'm recommending most is probably what we do in the shadows. But the OA, if the OA is your cup of tea, you should look forward to craziness.
0: Well, there you have it. This feels like a good point to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms and email us your TV questions at TV's Top 5 at THR.com.
1: That's TV's Top 5 at THR.com. And tell your friends. And if you like us, feel free to rate us. And if you really like us, review us on your various podcast platforms because word of mouth, it keeps us alive. Till next week, Leslie.
0: Till next week, Dan.